Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we have gathered here in your house to worship you. And now we stand before your word. And Father, we ask that you would be pleased to open our ears that we might hear you. And Father, that you would soften our hearts, that your word would take root in our lives and bear the fruit that you desire of us. Father, we pray that your word would be living and active and that you would use it to mold us and to make us into the image of your son, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the word who became flesh. Father, we pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Continue our series in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll be reading verse 4 to the beginning of verse 8. This is the word of God. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The word of our Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But if my word would stray from yours, may it be quickly forgotten. I pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. What does love look like? When you hear the words, I love you, from a parent or a great friend or your children or your spouse, How is it that in those words, you actually hear that you are loved? How is it that you genuinely know in hearing the words, I love you, that you are loved? Love is a concept and a term that is thrown about quite a bit these days. It's not new to our generation, surely. But nevertheless, it's widespread and nebulous use, often shows it to be devalued as a term. And yet, even though it's widespread, as we move to close out this eight-week series on the nature of love, I feel like we're only scratching the surface of God's love and the call in our lives. Yet this morning, we get another glimpse of love as Paul transitions his argument again. He's given a pair of descriptors uh, descriptors in verse 4. Love is patient and love is kind. And then he followed that with a series of eight negative statements about love, uh, explaining what love is not, what love does not do. And now he wraps up this whole section with a staccato of four pairs of two words in the Greek. And he brings his argument to a climax. I hope you remember that at one level, Paul is simply making the case that the eternal aspects of love's power is superior to the temporary power of spiritual gifts. 
Remember that this chapter is set in Paul's larger argument against an overemphasis or a hyper-focus on spiritual giftedness. Spiritual gifts are great, but Paul reminds us that love never ends. That's what he says in verse 8. And immediately after that, he'll explain that prophecies, tongues, even knowledge, they'll pass away. But love never ends. It's the superior gift. And yet, as Paul has been making this argument, he has been showing us this love. And he's been showing us God. And here he continues to do that as he crescendos his arguments with these, these, uh, this four pair, this affirmation of what love is. And therefore, what love requires of us. We'll be specifically looking at the first two pair or the first pair of pairs. Anyway, we're looking at the first two things. Love bears, loves believes this morning. But I'll touch a little bit into the second set, pulling a little bit from Lloyd, which he'll be wrapping up with next week. What does love look like? The ESV translates it, this Greek, and he tells us that love bears all things and believes all things. Love bears all things. So what does love look like? It might look like Paul. He shows us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and chapter 12 what love looks like. He imagines or he implies in chapter 11 verse 23 that sometimes his love makes him look like a madman. And in verse 24, he begins to explain what he means. He says, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once for a day and a night I was adrift at sea. In danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people. And Paul goes on. And he says, all because of his love for his brethren. A mad love. Love bears all things. The Greek word for bear, segi, is, is, that the ESV translates as bears here. It's only used by Paul of all the New Testament writers. And he only uses it in two other places. I've supplied some of the meaning that the contemporary uh, literature uses this word. It can sometimes mean cover, protect, support, ward off, hold back, or resist. Uh, Reading some of the ancient literature, the context shows us that it can also mean keep a secret or hold one's confidence. At its root, it means roof, or pronounced by many here in Montana, I'm now learning as roof. Uh, certainly you can't drive for hardly a block in Kalispell without seeing a roofing crew working on someone's roof. (laughs) And what does a roof do? It provides shelter. It gives us protection. It even upholds and supports the structure. A roof, can you can tie that in that way. It's protective. And it's because of that lexical uh, background, that connection, that the NIV, for instance, wants to emphasize that aspect of this word. And so they say love always protects. That's what it means in general. 
If we want to see perhaps how Paul is specifically using it here, we can look at those other two locations that Paul uses the same Greek word stegiae. First, he uses it in 1 Corinthians 9.12, and that's important because that's to the same body of believers, to the church in Corinth. He's just made this argument. And the argument that he's made in chapter 9 is, as a founding pastor and as a minister of the gospel among a church, he has a right to some material gain from them. But in chapter 9, verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, But we, stegomen, we, that's the plural of that same word. Here he translated, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. What's especially telling in this use is that in the Greek, it's the same two words, panta stegomen. In 1 Corinthians 13, it's panta stegai. They're right together. Paul is saying, I would rather endure financial hardship. I would rather bear up under meager circumstances than jeopardize the gospel. He would rather suffer than compromise for the gospel. The second time Paul uses this word stegai is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He uses it twice in verse 1 and in verse 5. Uh, Paul's laying out the case that his heart longs for the church in Thessalonica, and he wants to know how they're doing. He's trying to find that out, and he's unable to come himself. And so he writes, when I could bear it no longer, that's the same word, we sent Timothy to learn about your faith. Obviously, to use the word cover or protect would make almost no sense in that context. To bear up under. When I could stand it no longer, I had to find out how you were doing. So, love bears all. That's a translation that New Testament scholar Anthony Thistleton remarks. Though it's a lexically safe translation, it's theologically dangerous. That got my attention. Thesselton's concern is that we might take it in a way that Karl Marx looked at all of Christianity, that Christian notion of love as the opiate of the masses. The idea that he had here is that if this means that Christians are always and everywhere simply committed to bear up quietly under adversity, to suffer no matter what, They will only ever achieve what Nietzsche described as a civil mediocrity. New Testament scholar Kampa agrees. He said it would be dangerous if it meant that, suggesting that a better understanding is to recognize that love never gives in. That's the kind of love that Paul is describing here. And perhaps it might make sense or be wise to break for a minute and look at the whole structure in verse 7. There are four sets of two words. And the word panta, meaning all things, occurs four times. So when Paul's writing this, he's saying, panta stegiai, panta pistuiai, panta epsidai, panta upenomai. Can you hear the climax? Thesselton calls it a grand climax. And he suggests that all the proposed translation that takes four or five words to describe that phrase, like, Love never tires of supporting, or love is always ready to give someone the benefit of the doubt. They make two grave errors. First, they propose a 
credulous blindness of romantic love. And secondly, they leave us what what Thesselton calls fairly insipid English for a fantastic climax of a robust crescendo of extraordinary language. I just had to put that in there. That just sounded too cool to pass up. But you can hear it in the Greek, all things, all things, all things, all things. Thesselton even says that in the English, in our context, we might even be able to better capture it by flipping it into the negative. That we can present God's power of love more dramatically if we say never, 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 never. Kind of sounds like Winston Churchill. But it worked for him. And it worked for Paul to inspire the church at Corinth of the power of God's love. Can you hear him drawing this section to a dramatic close? He's been urging the Christians in Corinth to put put aside their petty divisions, to take the sin in their midst seriously. And Paul knows that the only way this can happen is if they take their eyes off of themselves and look again to the Lord. If they would recall the love that God showed them his forgiveness, his patience, his kindness. And so Paul cries out, this is what love looks like. Love never gives in. Love bears it out. Are you longing for a love like this? You are loved like this by your Father in heaven. This is the Father's love that Paul is describing. Gordon Fee describes it like this. He says, love has a tenacity in the present, buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future that enables it to live in every kind of circumstance and to continually pour itself out on behalf of others. A tenacity in the present. James gives us an example of what that may have looked like in the Older Testament. He writes, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James goes on, behold, as we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, have you heard of the steadfastness of Job? That's where we're reading in our family devotions now. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is gracious or compassionate and merciful. If we look back to Fee's description, again, he writes of that tenacious love that pours itself out on behalf of others. It's hard not to think of Philippians chapter 2, in which Jesus' love is described for us in just that way. Philippians 2, verses 6 and following, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he emptied himself literally poured himself out into the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters in Christ take great confidence in God's love. His love knows no bounds for you, his children. Paul states that very clearly in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not bear or spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God gave you his son and he'll give you all things as well. Be uplifted in God's love that bears all things. God's love protects, it covers, it supports, it never gives in, it never abandons. And furthermore, God's love both enables and empowers us to love others as well. To bear others' burdens, to serve beyond our natural inclination. God's love enables us to bear all things. And secondly, his love enables us to believe all things. Our first word is only used by Paul in the New Testament and only used in two other places. That is not the case with this word as translated believes. Now, the word in the Greek occurs over 200 times in the New Testament and about 400 times in the Greek Old Testament. It carries the word of uh, the, the meanings of reliance, trust, belief, sometimes faith itself. As I've already mentioned, Paul is urging the Corinthian believer to be filled with love, to actively consider how they can reverse the conduct in the Corinthian church of the conduct of petty feuds, of social and economic shaming, of turning a blind eye to the real sin in their midst. And he's saying, instead, you need to love. And towards that end, Paul exhorts them to consider that love believes all things. And so how do we understand that phrase, believes all things? Leon Morris notes that it points to a, quote, quality of trust that is ever ready to allow for circumstances and to see the best in others, end quote. Another scholar, Moffat, similarly notes, quote, always eager to believe the best, end quote. But Morris and others are quick to state that this does not mean, quote, love is gullible, but rather it does not think the worst, as the world often does, end quote. Calvin speaks uh, on this passage at length, and he says that to believe all things does not mean that the Christian divests himself of prudence and judgment, I'm quoting here, that he may be more easily taken advantage of, And not that he unlearns the way of distinguishing between black and white. What then, Calvin asks, what does it mean? And he answers, what Paul requires here is simplicity and kindness in judging things. These, he says, are the invariable accompaniments of love. A simplicity and a kindness. Matthew Henry explains that love is both full of candor and, quote, apt to make the very best of everything. He further talks that love judges well, love believes well, and he comments, quote, as far as it can with any reason, it will stretch its faith beyond appearance for the support of a kind opinion. So what does love look like? Looks like giving someone the benefit of the doubt as long as you possibly can. Believing them until all evidence points to the contrary. And then when you can no longer believe, then what does love do? And here, borrowing from Lloyd for next week, it continues on in hope. It believes until it can't, and then it continues on in hope. 
love hopes all things. There's a restaurant in the town of Boron, California, called Domingo's. And if you go there on your birthday, they will give you an absolutely delicious birthday treat and then take a photo of your first bite. However, if you looked at the photo, and some of them they have hanging up on the wall, what you will notice is a terrified look on most of the birthday recipients' uh, faces. And that's confusing because the dessert both looks amazing and tastes delicious. The photo captures the split second the guest goes to take a bite. It does not capture what's happening in the background. Uh, Even 10-second video would have explained that. Uh, Just as one server is preparing your first bite, another server quietly moves up behind the chair. And the instant the server is bringing the spoon to your mouth and you're leaning forward to take the bite, the second server pulls your chair back. And so you're struck with a moment of mini panic. Mouth open for a bite, terrified as you feel yourself falling backwards. The flash, the picture, the strange story. I would submit to you that unfortunately, all too often, we respond to those pictures. A split-second glimpse into someone's day. And instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt, instead of wondering if someone's behind the scenes rocking their chair, if we've caught them when they're off balance, we just push forward with that strange story. Think of how revolutionary this could be in our homes and in our communities if when we heard some wickedly delightful piece of news about someone we knew or some juicy morsel of information What if our first response would be, no thanks? And then of the person being spoken about, what if we thought immediately, you know, it probably didn't happen that way. That doesn't sound quite right. I'm thinking of strictly in economic terms here. If the demand drops, so will the supply. If we are no longer interested in scandalous stories and that, did you hear what so-and-so said? then the spread of those stories would diminish. Love can do that. And only love can do that. Love can bear all things, covering them, protecting them, enduring with them through difficulties. And love can give someone the benefit of the doubt. Do you remember when Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? That's a huge ask to put yourself out there to be wronged by someone seven times, to be embarrassed by someone, to be inconvenienced again and again. You know what the world says. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And Jesus said, Not seven times, but 77 times. Only God's love can do that. 
Calvin sums up our response by showing that if we love like this, he says the consequence will be that a Christian man will reckon it better to be imposed on by his own kindness and easy temper than to wrong a brother with unfriendly suspicion. This is love. And by all this, men will know, Jesus says, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you see how beautiful God's love is? It enables us never to give in and then never to give up. It enables us never to lose faith and then never to lose hope. Collins calls this the fourfold section of the universal dimension of the praise of love, another elevated statement about this conclusion. Some have argued that here, Paul is not describing God's love so much as he might be describing his own love. Talking about this passage with my wife, she helped me realize that those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. She reminded me that Paul regularly says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so even if Paul were speaking of himself here, Thesselton rightly reminds us that it is the love of Christ that inspires these words. Christ loves to the end. And so whether you are thinking of yourself in moments of darkness or despair, discouragement or doubt, or whether you're thinking of a loved one, perhaps a wayward son or daughter, perhaps a sibling or a parent, perhaps a beloved neighbor or a coworker, just a good friend that seems separated from or unaware of God's love and his forgiveness and the gospel. Take courage in your prayer. Pray with the preacher who sings to his beloved, set me as a seal upon your heart, for love is as strong as death. Its flashes are the, flare, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. God's love bears all. It never gives in. And his unfailing love uplifts us to love one another, to forgive one another, and to honor one another with that loving trust. God's love bears all, and it enables us to believe all. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this challenge. Truly, only you could work this out in our lives. We are a suspicious people, and we love to hear and honestly to rejoice when we hear of the wrongdoings of others. And love doesn't do that. Father, overwhelm us with your loveliness that we would truly be changed. Lord, dare we ask that your spirit would work that into our lives, that we would be quick to forgive, that we would be slow to listen, that we would turn away from anything that brings a brother or a sister down and instead determine to give them the benefit of the doubt until all evidence points otherwise. 
And then as we move on to the courses that sometimes we must take, the consequences of that, we still are filled with hope. Father, thank you that you have loved us like that and that your love never ends. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.